Welcome back, everybody, to the Talking Sportsbooks podcast after the summer vacation as we enter what is traditionally the busiest time, really, for new book releases. It is the run-up to the Christmas holiday season. Now, coming up today, we have a whimsical journey through the folk sports of Britain with an award-winning journalist, Harry Pearson. Now, his book, just released, is called No Pie, No Priest, and we're going to be introducing or reacquainting you with sports that have been hugely popular participation sports over centuries that you'll have probably forgotten, if you ever knew them at all. And those include... Stoolball, which can actually trace its history over 200 years. It was actually as well once played on the hallowed grasses of Lords. Also, Aunt Sally and cheese rolling. Now, that is to come. But shortly before we get there, coming up on the next show, I'm going to be joined by Carl Frampton to talk about his soon-to-be-released autobiography. And boxing continues, actually, to be featured quite extensively on this podcast for no other reason that it produces such glorious sports literature, such great, such evocative stories. And with that in mind, here's a clip from a programme that we did that featured the trainer, Paddy Fitzpatrick, talking about his book. It was called Hats, Handwraps and Headaches. And it recalls the moment that his life took a turn for the better when he had a chance meeting with the Hall of Fame trainer, Freddie Roach. One of the fight game's most charismatic coaches, Paddy Fitzpatrick, joins me to talk about his new book, Hats, Handwraps and Headaches. The story of his life from growing up in Ireland to landing that job at Freddie Roach's world-famous wildcard gym and, of course, a life which has been dedicated to the sport. It's a, a really good book and it introduces people to a side of you that perhaps people weren't aware of, beginning with your struggle to deal with and overcome issues which led to you trying to take your own life, uh, consider joining the Foreign Legion. Now, you hear many people in the fight game saying that boxing literally saved their lives. Now, would that be true for you? Would that be true for me? I suppose if you looked at it from far enough back, you'd say, yeah. But I think anybody, you hear it in boxing, but you hear it in everything, brother. Any, Everyone is struggling with something. And when people get into something or find something that then they're really passionate about, that because they're so passionate, all their focus comes on that and it's easier to deal with the things they're struggling with. And sometimes the things they're struggling with can fade away because they're so focused on this new passion. So that passion for me was boxing, but I don't necessarily think it's boxing in general. I think it's just finding a passion and, uh, and uh, chasing it. Would you say that you're a believer in fate? I mean, there's the moment in your life when it literally does change forever. You bump into Freddie Roach in a gym in the Channel Islands. He asks you if you fancy working at the wild card. I believe in luck. I don't know if I believe in fate. Um, I think that you've got to uh, you've got to be have some kind of momentum in order to be able to uh, 
even go forward once you find an opportunity. You know, if you're sad, still an opportunity can present itself. You don't even realize it. So you got to be moving in some kind of direction, even if it's in the wrong way. Um, I don't necessarily believe in fate. No, I do believe I was a, I was a lucky son of a gun. <laughs> uh, Freddie was over to prepare Steve Collins for Nigel Benn. His instruction to you was, meet me at the airport. Now, was there a part of you that as you were going up the M4 on your way from Swindon to Heathrow, that was thinking, I bet he isn't going to be there? A hundred percent. A hundred percent. I didn't... Uh... I listen the same as anything in my life up to that point. I thought, all right, well, I'll give it a shot. I didn't really expect him to be there at all. For for what reason? I mean, what reason? I had no no idea why he, he can only have been made that offer. First of all, he could have only made the offer just because he wanted to try and help somebody out that he thought could do with some help. I expect because he wouldn't have seen enough in me to think. God, this dude really knows he's boxing. Let me tell you, I have to get him over here to America with me. He didn't need me. He gave me an opportunity. Whatever reason he gave me the opportunity, I'm not sure, but I'm grateful for it. What was it like on day one when you arrived there? Were you surprised to find the wild card above a laundrette, basically? Certainly not big or flash, but just functional, basic, and pretty much like any other gym you'd been in? Um... But to me, it was a, a great looking gym. <laughs> Don't forget, it's not like I just I just get introduced to boxing when I met Freddie. Um, so, you you know, you as you're passionate about boxing, you read other biographies and other fighters and everything else. And I've traveled around before going to different gyms and very few gyms are state of the art. Most definitely back then. Um, and even the state of the art ones now, I don't like the vibe of them. Uh, Freddie's gym, I'd have said, was what I expected it to be. Just a, just a, you know, a gym with 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 the energy of a world class gym. From the second you open the door, the people that are coming through the door. You know, he was working with fourteen fighters at the time, um, all of them high up there. Was it easy for you to stay focused when you walked in there, pretty much for the first time? I mean, you're walking into the company of. Uh, some real boxing royalty, as you say, on day one. Sugar Shane Mosley was there. Uh, Layman Brewster was there. You bump into Tony. We had Garcia. Uh, quite easy, because I, I told myself, you know, you're not going to be any use to this man whatsoever if you're going to be getting acting like a, a fan every time you see somebody. Um, and I reminded myself, too, that the, the guys that I'd be working with didn't know me either, which wasn't necessarily a bad thing because they don't need to be working with somebody that they know as being uh, a top trainer. They just got to know that their trainer has brought this guy on as his assistant. And therefore, you know, they didn't need to know anything about me. I just had to act like I had every right to be there and act like I wasn't surprised to be there. And just, you know, keep my eyes and my ears open and my mouth shut until I thought it was the right time to speak. Now, you actually moved in and lived at the wildcard gym, didn't you? I had myself a little pet, too, after a few weeks. I, a, little, uh, a mouse came in when I'd be sat there watching the TV at night, and I saw this thing out the corner of my eye one night, and uh, and um, I'm sat there having uh, having some beer. I was having a pizza, I think, having a beer, 
having a smoke and watching some boxing on TV and I see this thing moving and I looked down, it was a mouse. And uh, when I looked down, he kind of just looked at me <laughs> and he didn't dart off. So I just broke a bit of the pizza off and threw it on the floor and he kind of scurried off a bit and then he came back and then he ate it. The next night he showed up um, and he was all right until he moved his friends in then I had to get rid of him. <laughs> I, I ended up having to turn on him and I had to set some of those uh, sticky jelly traps because he brought the boys back with him one night and I thought, whoa, <laughs> this ain't big enough for all of us. <laughs> Now, there's uh, a couple of moments early on which you must look back on now and smile. Tackling Alex Garcia, the heavyweight, about his uh, unpaid gym fees being won, and the legendary phone call with James Tony. I, I was thinking about this earlier today in a conversation with somebody, and I have a lot of regrets in life of, you know, big messes that I've made. But I think the regrets that stick with me most is when I have said something or reacted in a way without thinking and actually hurt somebody's feelings. Um, now, in that one, I reacted in a quick way and didn't think. <laughs> so it could have ended up me, be, me being hurt and not my feelings <laughs> physically. So Fred just goes, he owes gym money. He ain't paid. So I was just like, hey, my man, give me a second. <laughs> And then it escalated pretty quickly, um, but but um, we're cool now. Me and Alex are cool. A couple of weeks after that, we uh, we got chatting and we got cool with each other. And hey, these things happened, didn't they? The James Tony phone call. It was very funny. I have to say, reading it, there's a different telephone manner in the US to how we do things in you know Great Britain, United Kingdom. We're all very much, hello, how can I help you? Thank you very much, goodbye. They aren't, are they? I answered the phone. I, 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 thought, I, I thought I was, uh, I had the American way kind of down. They don't say hello or nothing else. So I used to answer the phone, same as Freddie. I just got wild card or boxing. And then this dude was just like, give me Freddie Roach. And I was like, all right, no problem. Who's, who's, who let tell him to call him? He said, don't worry who's calling, just give me Freddie Roach. I said, you might as well just tell me who it is. And he goes, mother, just get Freddie Roach. <laughs> so it wasn't until the third time that he called back when I said, James Tony. And then Freddie spun around. He went, no, buddy, <laughs> give me the phone, give me the phone. <laughs> and then I hear Freddie going, oh, don't worry about him. There's a dude from Europe. <laughs> but uh and then when I met James and he walked through the door, I just happened to be stood in the wrong spot again. Because when you walk through the door and you look to your left, there's like just enough room to walk behind the counter. And I happened to be leaning in that flipping hole when James walks through the door, sees Freddy, goes to walk through to Freddy. <laughs> and as he goes to walk by me, I'm like, what, you ain't going to say excuse me or something? <laughs> and he went... You're that funny talking mother off the phone. I was like, I said, oh, now I recognize you. And then Fred, he said, you're lucky I don't put a cap in your ass. And, you know, when you get to know him, he would have put a cap in your ass too. He wasn't He wasn't just faking it. But, but there you go, the luck of the Irish. I got away with it, didn't I? He certainly did. And James Tony, big guy, very big guy. 
Now, that was Paddy Fitzpatrick talking about his book, Hats, Handwraps and Headaches. And don't forget, you can listen to that and all the other 50-plus editions of this show on the website at www.talkingsportsbooks.com or via any of the streaming providers. And that brings us to this month's other featured book. Harry Pearson has been writing books and feature articles for, what, nigh on 30 years now. He has featured in When Saturday Comes. He has been a correspondent for The Guardian for many years, and he has won multiple awards. He has a new book. It is called No Pie, No Priest. Time now to get into the tactics of cheese rolling on Sally and stool ball. And on the way, we learn about what it's like to travel on a megabus and drink beer with very strange names. Yeah, I want to start by saying, what were you doing on the day that you thought, I've had an idea, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go and write a book about sports and that people, people have forgotten about or didn't know existed and what made you think this is the time well it was uh, someone sent me a, a youtube video of uh, the, the world nur and spell championships from the 19 <laughs> the early 1970s in which fred truman turned up in all his uh, his uh, indoor league glory uh, with that sort of hairstyle that looked like it, it looked like a um, a ferret that had fallen asleep on top of his head um, and they just said you know pete yorkshire cause, uh, and, and I, I sort of watched that and i thought oh, this is yeah, this near and spell. So I, I, I kind of investigated that a bit, and then I realised that there were lots of these sports that had either fallen by the waste. Because at that point, near and spell was actually in it. They say uh, they say that they're going to campaign to become part of the Olympics. You know, which is always the sort of a, that, that was always a thing, wasn't it? With it to legitimise a sport, yeah. if you say. But then you see the sports that are in the Olympics now. You think, well, mm, <laughs> I'm not so sure. But yeah, so that yeah. was really what started. It was seeing this old '70s uh, video. Of Nur and Spell with Fred Truman. Well, it's, it's funny. Indoor league. I remember that. If you were growing up in the seventies and the eighties, when it, I remember we had a there was a TV in a room at the school, and after uh, after dinner or lunch, whatever you want to call it, on Friday, Peter used to go back into this this room and just sit around and hang around, and the TV always used to be on. An indoor league came on, and it was all those. Well, it was like. Well, darts for one. I remember big, big, big Cliff Lazarenko uh, on there, and and table skittles. It was just fantastic. And he used to end that program only by just saying, "I'll sither." He did with it. He had a sort of big pint of beer in his hand and a fag, <laughs> probably. <laughs> but the, the the darts as well was played with a Yorkshire board as well. I seem to remember. I think that was his other thing: darts with a Yorkshire board, because of course, all all at one time before. Darts got its its kind of its organisational uh, um, centre in London. All a lot of regions had different sort of dart boards. And I think the Yorkshire one didn't have a bullseye, or it didn't have doubles or something. It had, it had less. It had less. It had, you could get less points on it than an, than an ordinary dart board, probably. No, I mean, I know there's never much argument when you suggest that the the Brits are a bit on the eccentric side, and uh, and I'm I'm picturing you over 
what do you call tea and dainties after your uh, <laughs> your trip to the WI and you were introduced to, to various forms of etiquette. I mean, these are quite fabulous. Uh, no crimping of sausage rolls. Never knew that, actually. I never, uh, never crimped that short crust. I never eat a quiche in a fluted dish. I mean, most people wouldn't know what a fluted dish was, but apparently that's only for desserts. It's only for yes, yeah, only for it's only for a sweet flan. When I because I said to the I said to the WI ladies I was having tea with her. You know, sometimes I used to give a talk to the WI and um, about agricultural shows or whatever. And I said, oh, this friend of mine entered it was you know, and she said, oh, well, if it was in a fluted dish, it would be disqualified because that's only for <laughs> that's only for sweet flans. I just said it as if like everyone should know that you know <laughs> this bizarre thing, and you know you did notice that with agricultural shows that there was you had to enter certain things in certain numbers, so it'd be like four eclairs but three coconut haystacks. <laughs> so you know, there's a whole there's a whole uh, law of that. Which when people talk about you know the Japanese and you know the sort of variations of bowing and all of these kind of things and how complicated it all is, they they should just they should just see a WI baking competition if they want complicated etiquette. Well, this book that said then it, it isn't just about weird abandoned sports of yesteryear and a ski ballet and aerial golf uh, get a mention there but these are these are traditional sports centuries old and as you said deeply rooted and still played competitively so did you have a list were there any that didn't make the cut no no i think i I think i've covered most of them i I think what i wanted was to do things as i say they're not self-reverentially zany you know, they're not like bog snorkeling or something like that. They're actually sports that have evolved in the same way that football or cricket evolved. You know, they've evolved organically over a, a period of centuries. Most of them do date back, you know, right to the to the same times that cricket and football emerged. Um, and some of them are so rough that no one, you know, the, the, you know, the, 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 the Cooper's Hill cheese rolling, which, you know, sounds like a sort of zany British thing, oh, everyone chasing after a cheese. But if you actually watch it, I mean, Andy Smart, who, who sadly died earlier this year, the, the comedian, he said to me that he'd, he'd run with the bulls in Pamplona 62 times and he'd slid down Ben Nevis on a lilo. And he said that he did the Cooper's Hill cheese rolling once and that was enough. So the Spanish run away from bulls and the English run after a cheese. <laughs> and you say that the running after the cheese is more dangerous. I, I picked various sports out to to look at, and you're usually drawn by the name. So, Glybrecht Grant for stool ball, um, and one of the earliest references to this in, in print was in the uh, the Evening Standard, well over a, a century ago. And I love the reporting talking of merry milkmaids, milkmaids rather, flashing ankles and rippling. Petticoats. Yeah, well, this was stool ball was the, the kind of dairy maid's form of cricket, and when cricket was invented around the same time and in the same area, sort of in Sussex, um, and uh, just as sort of shepherds invented cricket, playing it with the things that they had—a crook and a ball of wool and a, a picket gate—the the, the milkmaids played a game very similar, where they used a they used a butter paddle. And a, and a milking stool as the wicket. So it's very kind of similar to cricket. They run up and down it, but it was always played by women. And it's like the first sport, you know, developed by women for women. Um, and the, probably the first great um, English female sports star was Gertrude Brand, who played for the Glind Butterflies. Um, and she scored school ball's first century in, in 1868. Um, and unfortunately, her career was cut short. She actually retired when she was 24, not 
not because of injury, but because of something far worse, matrimony. Yeah, I saw that. Her, her yes, career she, yes, curtailed yes. by marriage. By marriage, yes. It was, it was considered it was considered all right for a, for a single lady to play stool ball, but not for a married lady. And I should say, stress, she was a lady. She was the, I think she was the Chatelaine of Glind House or something <laughs> down in down in Sussex. So you know, so they were so the Glind Butterflies and the the Chaley Grasshoppers and people like that. They were teams like that in in Victorian times. They were kind of superstars of their sport and, and were taken very taken seriously up to a point. But as you mentioned. Uh, male sports writers who came to comment on it were always uh, slightly prurient. It's funny, actually, because there is a because class and the class divide or that great British institution of, of class does rock up a few times in the book. And in, in that sport as well, they talk about the class divide. Upper class ladies uh, being described as having elegance and praised for being nimble and their grace all round in the performance as opposed to the um, lesser classes. Uh, who were all about bumbling incompetence? Yeah, they, they were all described as duffers. <laughs> the poor, the poor working class women. If they dropped a catch, yes, it was it was misfortune if the upper class lady dropped a catch. But they were just they were just butterfingered duffers if they, if they were working class. That's absolutely fantastic. You, you you go back to these inter county shows because it wasn't just a, a, a southern sport. It was played in the north as well, using different uh, implements, using a hand as a, as a bat. No, I, didn't, I, I didn't sort of get into it in the book, but, I mean, one of the most popular sports in County Durham, and you can still see the, 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 sometimes see the markings painted on alley walls, was fives. Which is you know which is played with your hand, which we would tend to associate with public schools, you know, because it was like a you know fives is a game, a bit like squash, I suppose. You hit you hit the ball with you, but you hit the ball with your hand instead of with a racket into a. Okay, I've got to tell you here, I I played that. <laughs> Did you right? Well, there you are. You see. <laughs> <laughs> it was, but listen, it was the sport that you got sent to play. If you weren't any good at rugby. <laughs> cricket or football right you'd be sent down there and all i remember is these gray horrible um freezing cold outdoor courts and you have picked up these revolting cold sweaty gloves with <laughs> holes in your fingers and you had to whack what felt like a concrete ball with your hand yeah well this is this is a strange thing but as i say that was hugely popular with durham miners because obviously the you know sort of back alleys behind miners you know two up and two down houses formed and they formed an easy there was a, a they formed an obvious court so they were so that was hugely popular but then would be when it was played in County Durham, there'd be mad betting on it. I imagine <laughs> where probably there wasn't probably there wasn't at the public schools because that was often one of the things that with these old sports. I mean, this is one of the things that distinguished them really. I mean, it's why cricket became so popular in Georgia and England because you can bet on a massive amount of things in cricket, and that was why games existed. I think in um, I think one of the earliest books about games, he, the guy. It was written in early, sort of early Georgian times, and he, he does this um, roundup of all the sports of Britain. And he says in it, yeah, that running races only exist for betting. You know, he, say, he literally says, you know, the only reason that anyone would run a run a race is for a, is for betting. As you delve back into the to the history, you find yourself again getting going back further and further and further. There was this um, match on Tunbridge Common in, in 1797. I mean, 1797. The the Sussex Blue Ribbon and the Kent pink ribbon um i mean so we're talking about 
yeah, 200 odd years old, 200 plus years old, this sport. And again, people don't realise the fact that it's still played as well. Well, I think that's the thing, and it's still it's still got a stronghold in the same areas, and that was one of the that was again was one of the interesting things because where I grew I grew up in the North Rhine of Yorkshire, near, just on the edge of the North Yorkshire Moors, and coits in in the Esk Valley, coits is a massive sport, which is like throwing a, a steel ring at a, at a metal peg that's embedded in a square of clay. If you can, <laughs> and the, yeah, there's a, a whole load of complicated rules about how you score points, but and that sport there was hugely popular. But if you went out of that. If you went out of Eskdale into other parts, you wouldn't see it anywhere. And where I live now in South, in Tyndale, in Northumberland, it's also popular here, weirdly. And you, it's a really distinctive sound, the sound of these metal um, rings hitting each other. So if, I remember walking down a road in Northumberland, I heard this noise and I knew, I thought, oh, that sounds like coits, you know, imagine <laughs> that, you know. And, but it's only in these very small pockets, you know, and the same with stool ball. You know, it's only in that bit of Sussex, edge, edges of Surrey, a bit of Kent, you know, but that that's where its heartland is. And it did spread out from there for a while. Um, you know, probably there was a guy who was a who who tried to kind of... T- there was one of those things where you always learn about... That. There are always those sports that are the fastest-growing sport in the world, aren't there? I don't oh, know what yeah, it would be see, now, like New it. Age curling yeah. or something or whatever. Yeah. And so for a while, stoolball was the fastest-growing sport in Britain, but uh, it never it never really... Ha- in the end, it all it just went back to where it, you know, to where it is, its, its heartland of Sussex. And this is true with Bat and Trap as well, which is played in Kent. Bat and Trap. You know, which is <laughs> it's only played in Kent, and specifically around Canterbury. I mean, not in all of Kent, it's just the area around Canterbury where it's, you know, there are there are two leagues there with, you know, you know 32 teams in them playing competitively, you know, and, and that, but that's only if you, you know, if you met anyone from anywhere else, they'd have no idea what it was. And the same with Coits, you know, there's only a few places where it's played. So, uh, and still ball the same. And if you lived, if you grew up in Sussex, you would know what you would know about it. But if you didn't, you, you won't. There was a bit of a renaissance, wasn't there, with, uh, in particular, Gertrude's Club, which was got back into existence again in 2011. But again, you go back to the, the 1920s, and the guy that tried to turn this into something big was the major, wasn't yeah, it? Yes, yeah, so he, he, he sort of he got this idea, and I think this was this was true of a few of these sports. Is that after the after the First World War, there were a lot of disabled servicemen. And they so they wanted sports that were non-contact sports that would get people out in the open air. And stool ball, of course, you don't. Unlike cricket, you only play. It's played one-handed. You hold the bat with one hand. So you'd, even if you'd lost an arm, you could still play. You know, which sounds gruesome, but you could still play. And so yes, the major he he sent out some um, stool ball kits. You know, of, of, of with all the equipment in them to to hospitals. In Belgium and France, so that so that uh, disabled servicemen could learn to play stool ball, and he had he was actually played quite. He played a regular game at Lords. Um, he, 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 was, how many times do <clears throat> how many times do they let you do anything other than play cricket at Lords? Well, this I mean, is this the thing: is I mean, there's, there's hardly there's hardly any other sports that have been played there. I think baseball's been played there a couple of times, and ar- archery as well, which was a sort of for some reason a sport that was lacrosse. Lacrosse has been played there as well, but stool ball is in that you know that elite group of I think there's about five sports that have been played at Lords, and stool ball is one of them, and it was played as I say every year. Um, these strange games where it would be his his eleven against the diplomats of London or something like that, you know. Because there's one game where a Japanese, I think a Japanese ambassador scores twenty. I think he's a top scorer. Well, you're you're spot on because you mentioned that in the book. Grantham's team took on the Japanese embassy 
uh, as a means to try and, and promote the sport. But interestingly, they the question being asked, why didn't it fully take off? Perhaps because it was only played by women. Yeah, well, this is what uh, you know. This is what when I talk to people who, who who run the sport. In you know, they said that's that that's what what they thought. You know, because women's sport, women's sport was quite frowned upon. I mean, remember, with, you know, with women's football nowadays, we're all talking about the lionesses. But the FA banned women's football until the nineteen seventy from the nineteen twenties till the nineteen seventies. Women weren't allowed to play on um, FA approved grounds and things like that. So women's sport was always slightly frowned upon. And, or looked upon as either a novelty or uh, some kind of weird novelty. And so it was never, Stillball was never really taken seriously because of that. Uh, let's move on then as uh, you head on your, your trip around the UK. Marsh Bolden, uh, Oxfordshire, uh, were introduced to um, your various problems growing old and the ailments that you were <laughs> suffering and... Uh, which obviously deserves a significant mention, is uh, a, a trip on something called a megabus. Those are those big blue ones that, that, that yeah. advertise you can go for 1p. You can, you can, but you can't go for 1p on them. <laughs> you need more than 1p on a journey on them, that's for sure. Um, yeah, no, they're, they're very, very cheap, and I hadn't used them. I hadn't been on them since I was a student, you know, when you used to be, I used to get the bus up to, to Newcastle when I was a student and uh, from London, a sort of six-hour bus journey. But yeah, they're, they're so much cheaper than than the train, you know, which, as we know, are, are ludicrously expensive oh. nowadays. And, uh, and, the know, village they... green, uh, Marsh Bolden, said to be the biggest green in Europe, home of the is the Seven Stars pub, isn't it? Yes, and that, um, that, that's the, that's a kind of birth, that's the the birthplace really of the aunt, of ants, competitive Aunt Sally, um, which involves uh, people don't know it involves throwing um, sticks. At a at a at a doll a doll's head basically as it's called a doll's head it's not really it isn't it doesn't look much like a doll it's like a white it's like sort of vaguely head shaped and it's mounted on a it's mounted on a staff with a hinge on it so if you hit it it it's knocked over but the thing is that you're not in Aunt Sally you throw the stick you try and hit it but you, if you hit the the wooden part that it's mounted on first it doesn't count so they have two judges who are there to to spot. To spot whether the stick hits, strikes the stuff first, or strikes the doll's head first. Um, there's You're no being ver- a bit premature here, aren't you? Because Aunt Sally originally wasn't played with a doll, was it? it no, was a no. live hen. It was played with a live hen. Yes, it was like a many many sports. That, that, that again wasn't one of the one of the things about all sport from the you know medieval times onwards until the I think it was the, I think there was a, a kind of cruelty to animals act that was passed in the 1830s. But up until then, yes, that the, it was used. A live chicken was used, and whoever knocked its head off got to keep it. Um, but this was imported, though, was it not from the US? It might have been imported from the US. It certainly is, it's certainly something that's usually most sport that is, was invented seems to it seems to. But most people claim it's invented during this, the English Civil War by, by royalist soldiers who apparently didn't have anything better to do than invent sports like darts. Was always said to be invented by them. But yeah, there was there was a version of it that was imported from the US where you had to knock a pipe out of a doll's mouth, but the doll. Who was Aunt Sally was always black, so obviously there was a kind of racial. There was, a, was either yeah. animal cruelty first and then racism second. <laughs> so it's, yes, its origins are slightly um, dark, dubious, dark and dubious. <laughs> the the original Aunt Sally League in the Oxford and District Association had a hundred and twenty 
sides, teams, whatever, spread over 12 divisions and 1,400 players. That is just for anybody that's, you know, in any doubt about how popular this sport was. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it was absolutely huge, and you can and you can see online, you know, the, if you if you go online, you can see you can see the the sort of league tables and all the, the you know the complication of having all these teams playing each other, you know, those vast kind of fixed, you know, those those kind of fixture grids that you get at football, but just like with hundreds and hundreds of teams on it, it's absolutely extraordinary. I mean, I can't say that it's not as you know that it doesn't have the same number of players now, but it still has a you know a considerable number. I mean, you know, certainly, certainly over a thousand people playing it regularly, um, and again, only really in that little area of Oxfordshire, Banbury, a bit in, you know, a bit into Warwickshire, but it's only specifically in that area. And again, like the Batten Trap League in Kent, it started up really after the First World War. Again, I suspect there was, you know, again, something you play one-handed, something that's played out of doors, but it doesn't involve physical contact. And it seems like those sports. After the First World War, they became very popular then. You know, as I say, Batten Trap as well. Their league was founded in, I think, 1921. And the Aunt Sally League started then as well. Uh, and the distance, just again to give you another, to try and get a handle on how difficult this game is, the distance from the throwing strip is 30 feet. Yeah, it's a, it's a lot. Yeah, it's a bit, you know, so it's a bit like a bit like bowling in cricket almost, you know, it's, it is a long way. And the sticks are quite heavy. And of course, a stick isn't a ball. Is it a stick's quite a hard thing to control when you throw it? You know, yeah, do yeah. you want it to turn end over? So there's a, there are sort of various thoughts on how to do it, whether to throw it kind of sidearm so it goes flat, or whether to throw it underarm so it goes end to, you know, so it revolves end to end. But obviously and so eight players throwing six sticks each uh, that's around or a, a house matches the best of three this this is something that goes on a bit then this isn't over in 20 minutes it's after not, you've no, a couple but they, of don't, they don't they don't mess around it's not like darts where they you know where the people are really you know a, where they seem to be aiming very very carefully i mean the people throw the sticks like it's like they get a rhythm and they throw them you know boom 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 they don't you know they don't sort of mess around or like golfers you know sort of you know eyeing everything up they just they tend to do it very very fast so it goes through quite quickly like that. It's also as well prodigiously noisy as well as another. As a lot of these sports are, you know, because it's basically wood clacking against wood or and wood against pot and wood hitting cat because they have a canvas um, board behind it or a sh- sheet of canvas behind, which normally has like a target on it, so they can see the doll because the doll's white and the and the canvas is generally green, so they can, it's sort of easier to see it. So you've got all the thumping of that. So it's quite annoying. It's quite noisy. And it has to be underarm throwing as well. And a maximum break here, obviously, eight sixes, 48. Uh, nobody has ever managed it, have they? The closest was, I think you mentioned, 40 out of 48. And we're talking about 1962 that happened. Yeah, yeah, no. So, I mean, you know, he would be, I mean, if anyone ever does it, it's like the, you know, like the maximum break in snooker. Obviously, people are doing that all the time. But yes, a maximum break in Aunt Sally, that would be an, that would be an achievement for the ages. Can you imagine if they ever said, like, we're going to relax the rules here? It's not only underarm, you can do overarm. <laughs> I think it would be quite dangerous as well for the judges who are standing near, because they, they have to stand quite near the doll, you know, because they, they have to set it up as well every time it gets knocked down. So, yeah, it would be quite dangerous for them if people were throwing it overarm. <laughs> uh, did, uh, did your mention, by the way, of your pint of uh, wibbly, wobbly, whip it do anything to boost trade? No, I, I'm not, I'm not sure. I'd like, to, I'd like to think so. I'd like to think so. It's, it's one of those things with real ale, isn't it? Where you know the the, the more the, the, it was a sort of trend towards ludicrous names, wasn't there? And, and that, yeah, that yeah. certainly fits in there. Wibbly wobbly whip it. 
<laughs> right. Lastly, and we have we have mentioned this, but just down the road from Ox- Oxfordshire into Gloucestershire, the the Cooper's Hill cheese running has got to be uh, mentioned due to the to the carnage. And back in the 1990s, for those of uh, those of us who were in your uh, peak years around then, um, there were things called lads mags. When there, there was FHM, there was uh, Maxim was another one. The circulation of these things was just phenomenal. Hundreds of thousands of, of copies a week and a month in the 1990s. But one of the journalists at uh, Maxim did a piece on it. And the next year, 4,000 people turned up. They had stag parties and handies and everything following the cheese rolling. Well, that, well, that was right. That was Andy Smart, who I mentioned earlier, who, who'd done the Pamplona uh, uh, bull runs and stuff. Yeah, and he said he always felt really bad about it because I think that the following year, the Guardian sent me to write a piece about it and it was actually cancelled because before <laughs> be, before Andy had written this piece, you know, like you know, like 200 or 300 people, local people went to see it and it was a big kind of tradition and people went to see it locally. But this sudden influx of people up in, a, in an area where there's, a, there's only like a single track road up to it Yes, yes. And they, yeah, and they sort of said, they said, oh, no. And, and the, the, the guy who organised it, I said, oh, and they, they said, oh, they'd say it's health, it's health and safety. And I said, what, well, but they've been doing this for years. And he said, oh, no, it's not that. It's, if, it's because they can't get a fire engine or an ambulance through this road. And he said, um, the, the fire service said, what if there was a terrorist incident? <laughs> it's like, what kind of terrorist? I mean, you know, you, you've got to prepare for these things. It's an eight-pound double Gloucester. Exactly. What kind, of ter- what, kind of, <laughs> what kind of terrorist would attack this? But, yeah, so, so yeah, so it was, it has been sporadically banned by the authorities i think you know like all as as all these sports have over time it's not the local news because i'm in the southwards in the west country it was it was always the end of the bank holiday news and you'd get the smiling presenter there going and finally, on Cooper's <laughs> Hill today, and you'd you'd get the story. But there was one year back at the end of seventies where they had seventy people attend, thirty three injuries, three broken collarbones, broken wrists, broken ankles, and two blokes who knocked each other unconscious. Well, the, 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 yeah, because the, 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 there was a Canadian who, a woman who won the women's recently, I think last year, and she said, you know, when she crossed the finish line, when she was asked, she said, oh, "I didn't know I'd crossed the finish line because I was unconscious at that point." <laughs> <laughs> and she'd come all the, she'd come from Canada because she she was on a she was on a kind of gap year interrailing and she saw something about it on the news and thought I've got to go and see that and then somehow ended up ended up entering it but I did say that the, the um, Andy Smart so there's a guy called Chris Anderson who's the real sort of a superstar of the Cooper's unbeaten Hill. unbeaten isn't he? I think he's won it six times and he he said to, he said to to Andy Smart that the secret is to drink six pints of cider first. Uh, but I would be unconscious before the start if I had done that. Well, that would that, be a classic West Country thing, that six pints of rough and you'll be relaxed. You'll be relaxed. I noticed idea, that it? they moved the start time from 6 p.m. down to, to 2 p.m. Y- yes. to control the people that used to turn up, get over-enthusiastic after six pints like him and decide that they were going to have a go anyway. Yeah, exactly. That was, that was the old way that the boxing booths in the fairgrounds worked as well wasn't it blokes turned if we had a skinful and thought they could thought they'd know how to box <laughs> but what about the beginning of this again you going back to these traditional english eccentrics i mean where else could you find in the world uh, some people rolling a an eight pound double gloucester down the down a hill but the mc in the white spot with the lily a silk top hat a red white and blue 
ribbon calling for volunteers. I mean, it's just, I mean, it's just incredible. Yeah, it's just fantastic. I mean, that, those events, you know, I think that is a, it is a really amazing and fantastic event. And the fact that it goes on, it's like one of these things that's completely unruly as well. And you realise that's what country life was like, really. You know, for, for centuries, that's what life in the countryside was like. It was completely unfettered. You know, there was no policing of it. And so these these sports went on. I mean, you know, the, the, the old folk football matches that were played on Shrove Tuesday, which there were at one time hundreds all over Britain that were gradually banned in Victorian times. But, you know, they're another example of it where there's this kind of, the, you know, the Hallerton, the Hallerton bottle kicking, you know, which are really just this, this mass mob football. There were mm. things like that going on all over the countryside, you know, these kind of, you know, we were really a kind of, I suppose, Britain in Georgian times, it was, a, people were a mad, unruly, drunken mob. <laughs> that was really what the... Not, not a lot's not, changed. Not a lot has changed, you're quite right. <laughs> <laughs> that cheese does reach speeds of 80 miles an hour, doesn't it? But that guy, Chris Anderson, has got to have special mention. He won 23 cheeses in an undefeated career. And you think, oh, 23 races. Just, people just need to look at this event yeah. to see how remarkable that achievement is. Well, well, when I went to see it, you know, when I went to cover it for The Guardian, I thought, oh, it's this kind of like cutesy, you know, it's in the Cotswolds. It's some kind of cutesy, you know, oldie England thing. And then you look up at the hill and it's like looking up a ski jump. You know, I mean, it's it's steeper than a ski jump. It's, I think Andy said, you know, it's not it's not a hill; it's a cliff, basically. And of course, they can't cat. They never cat. They're supposed to catch the cheese, but no one can catch the cheese because it's going too fast. You know, it's just the first person who gets to the bottom who wins it. Also, the fantastic other prizes that they used to offer. You know, which even in the nineteen, I think even in two thousand, the second prize was a postal order for three pounds or something like that. You know, so you're really doing it for the glory. And so lastly, then, what was your favourite moment when you were researching this book? I, th I think the, uh, the I think I, I really love Shinty. And I, it was a game that I played when I was a kid, which is a sort of Highland, I suppose, like a former, it's, it's a bit like hockey, but, you know, and it's played up in the Highlands of Scotland. And I went up to, I went up to watch that at um, Canusi, the Kings of Shinty. Um, and that just that game is fantastic. Anyway, it's one of those games that anyone could watch it. You don't have to understand the rules because it's just the ball's just whacked about moving from end to end. Um, and, you know, it's really it's highly dangerous as well. I mean, so dangerous. This is one of the things with that is that the rattle of the sticks um, is so – it's it's said that the, that it's sometimes it attracts red deer stags because they, they think it's other stags. So sometimes the Shinty <laughs> players have actually been attacked by red deer, driven from the field by, by angry red deer. Um, so that's, that was, you know, that's one of our favourite uh, favorite sports, I think, of all. Um, and there's, there's a guy in that who, uh, who was – one of the things that really attracted me to it as a boy as well, there was a player who played for Newton Moore uh, before in the 1930s called Sir Thomas McPherson. And he actually, he actually escaped from a Nazi POW camp on a motorbike. So he's actually the man who inspired the Steve McQueen character in uh, Great Escape. Great so that's so, the kind yeah. of people who play Shinty. <laughs> so as a follow-up to this book, then you could go on and do one for the the indoor games, couldn't you? The sort of the, you know, pub things, you know, bar skittles and bar billiards, yeah, and table skittles, shove apney. 
crib. <laughs> yeah, champagne. Me. That's, that was another. That was another indoor league favourite, wasn't it? And as yes. you say, there's that sort of. Yeah. What was the skit? What's the skittles on a? Well, it's on a string. What's that? Called? Yes, that's but that's that's, um, bar, that's bar skittles. Bar skittles. Yes, and there was also there's a diff, that different form of um, billiards as well with the with the little mushroom things. On yeah, it. that's bar billiards. Bar billiards. We're all the bar. They're yeah. all just bar. I just got put bar in it. <laughs> yeah, because I did you mention did. like toad in the hole as well, which involves throwing a kind of brass disc into a into a hole, as the name suggests. You which, mentioned. Bat and tap, didn't you? This is the balls on a string that you literally throw around the frame yeah, to try and knock the others off. That's right. Yeah. There's a, yes, because a lot of there's a lot of those sort of things. Yeah. So it could, I could do that actually, and yeah, that would that would involve spending a lot of time in pubs, obviously. Which, well, that wouldn't be too bad. It's <laughs> <laughs> brilliant. And that was Harry Pearson talking to me earlier this week about his new book. It is called No Pie, No Priest. And there is an awful lot more in it than we managed to get through there. Uh, it's a really entertaining book. And yes, afterwards, I did look up Stoolball, Aunt Sally and uh, Cheese Rolling on YouTube. And there are hundreds upon hundreds of uh, video clips. And you can go online and look at the federations because they all have federations. And uh, funny enough, actually, the Cooper's Hill cheese rolling this year had Caleb. If you watch Clarkson's Farm, you'll know who Caleb is. He was doing the interviews, and I think he was handing out cheeses at the end as well. Anyway, that book is available now from all the usual retailers. And that is it for this month. Don't forget, you can listen to all 50 previous editions of the podcast. And they're available via the website at www.talkingsportsbooks.com or via any of the main streaming providers. I'll be back again at the end of the month when Carl Frampton is going to join me to talk about his new autobiography, which is at around the 24th, 25th of September. Till then, from me, Tim Cable. Bye-bye for now.